0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode.
1: There seems to be a multitude of themes of which the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers at Colossae. And uh, you probably noticed the key verse there in verse 16 of uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2, and it mentions um, the theme which we'll be looking at, God willing, this evening. And Paul says in Colossians 2 and verse 16, he says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Now, when you see that word Holy Day in verse 16, it's the only time in the New Testament that Holy Day is rendered in the English, Holy Day. But it comes up numerous times in the Greek and it manifests itself in the New Testament under our English word, a feast or a festival. So I don't know why the translators decided that here in verse 16 of Colossians 2, that this word, which just means a feast or a festival, would be translated a holy day. But as I say, it's the only time in the English that it's translated holy day. But perhaps more importantly, there in verse 16, you might like to make a note of this, but the Apostle Paul, he mentions sort of three calendar events that would go on, in presumably the Jewish calendar of the day, and they're these. Once a year, there would be a holy day, or a feast, or a festival. And so Paul is alluding to that once in the year, there would be a holy day. Secondly, he alludes to uh, the new moon. Well, that would occur 12 times a year. And so we would say that'd be once a month. And lastly, in verse 16, he alludes to the Sabbath day. Well, that would happen once a week. And so the Apostle Paul was touching on here in verse 16, a holy day, once a year, a new moon, once a month, and a Sabbath day, once a week. And so no matter where these uh, feasts or festivals uh, resided, they would take on a different time in the calendar. And this is what we're going to try and endeavor to look at tonight, God willing, to consider where do holidays come from? And if we're going to ask the question, where do holidays come from, then hopefully, God willing, at the end of the night, we'll perhaps have a better appreciation, should we celebrate them. Now, what are we going to look at tonight, God willing? I uh, went through our sort of calendar as it presently is constituted in this day and age. And I figured I would choose perhaps what I felt were three prominent holidays. And they are Valentine's Day, Halloween, and Christmas. And as our presider, Brother Nate, alluded to, a very timely uh, topic as we come into, as it were, the holiday season. And as always, we'll have uh, thoughts on what does the Bible say throughout our evening. So here we are going to sort of begin on our journey and cover, in this order, Valentine's Day, Halloween, and Christmas, their origins. And perhaps this might be where it will helpful to have that uh, letter H in our glossary for some answers as we sort of traverse the subject. So let's begin with Valentine's Day. Now, ask yourself. Here on the screen, where is this? This is an artist's rendering of a very famous uh, city, uh, still around today, although it doesn't look exactly like this. Well, this would be ancient Rome. And as we consider Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day actually goes back quite far, and it goes back to the ancient city of Rome. It goes back so far, uh, it goes back to the genesis of the city of Rome multi-millennia ago. Now, when you look on uh, Britannica.com, a very uh, well-known website, this is sort of the, uh, the genesis of the city of Rome. This is kind of helpful to give us an appreciation of uh, all about this uh, ancient city of Rome. And here's what it says under the topic these two individuals, Romulus and Remus. Now, who were they? Well, according to legend, they were the founders of Rome. For traditionally, they were the sons of an individual named Rhea Silvia, who was daughter of Numitor, king of Albalonga. Now, the story goes that Numitor had been deposed by his younger brother, Amulius, who forced Rhea to become one of the Vestal Virgins and thereby vowed chastity in order to prevent her from giving birth to a potential claimant to the throne. But nevertheless, Rhea bore the twins Romulus and Remus, fathered by the god of war, Mars. Now Amulius ordered the infants drowned in the Tiber River, but the trough in which they were placed floated down the river and came to rest at the site of the future Rome, near the Ficus ruminalis, a sacred fig tree of historical times. So a little bit of history here, that this is where, legend has it, and of course we can see through uh, the facade, but nonetheless, that Romulus and Remus were these two sons, and they were the founders of Rome. Well, through time, uh, the inhabitants of Rome obviously believe this, and they developed the early Valentine's Day from a bit of this story. And when we go to National Geographic, we learn a little bit about Valentine's Day, but it wasn't called Valentine's Day. It was called the Festival of Lupercalia. So what was this festival? Well, the ancient pagan festival Lupercalia began in a dark sacred cave as far back as the 6th century BC. So that's hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Now, again, according to legend, a group of Roman priests would gather. They would slaughter a goat, which would represent sexuality, and then a dog, which would represent purification. So there would be all these sorts of sacrifices that would go on with these uh, priests in order to commence this festival, Lupercalia. Now, once the sacrifice had taken place, um, things took sort of a darker turn all throughout the city of Rome as they commenced uh, this feast known as Lupercalia. You see, once the sacrifices were complete, things took an even darker turn. The priests, known as the Lupercai, meaning brothers of the wolf, would cut the animal' skins into strips and dip them in the sacred blood. And what would they do with them? Well, They would then take to the streets where women would line and voluntarily look to get whipped by the pieces of the hide. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, according to their belief system, is if they were to receive a lashing uh, from one of these priests, a luperci, they would become fertile. And so when they mated or when they sat down with their partners, they would hope to have a child. And it was uh, considered good fortune if the luperci would hit you on their way running through the streets. And so you can just imagine the frenzy that would go on as this Feast of Lupercalia would begin. And obviously there would be other things attached to this festival. So how did it sort of uh, make the leap from Lupercalia to Valentine's Day today? Well, we move forward just a few centuries. And here again from History.com. This is where we see sort of a blending of pagan feasts merge with sort of a church acceptance. Now, here's where we're sort of introduced to the actual man, uh, an individual, whose name was Valentine. Now, here's the legend contends that this individual, Valentine, he was a priest who served during the third century in Rome. Now, when Emperor Claudius II decided that single men made better soldiers than those with wives and families, Claudius outlawed marriage for young men. So you can imagine that this would be quite an edict, that Claudius wanted a better uh, army, so he ordered that his soldiers uh, could not marry. So in comes uh, this priest, Valentine. So Valentine, realizing the injustice of the decree, defied Claudius, and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. Now, when Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death. So what do you do if you're sort of Church of Fathers uh, a few um, centuries later? Well, some believe that Valentine's Day is celebrated in the middle of February to commemorate the anniversary of Valentine's death or burial, which probably occurred around AD 270. Others claim that the Christian church may have decided to place St. Valentine's feast day in the middle of February in an effort to Christianize the pagan celebration of Lupercalia. So here we have sort of the blending together of a pagan feast with sort of an early church acceptance. So what do they do? Well, they celebrate it on the Ides of February, or the middle is what the word Ides means, February 15th. And Lupercalia was a fertility festival dedicated to Faunus, the Roman god of agriculture, as well as to the Roman founders of Romulus and Remus. Now, as we move into today, though, it's quite fascinating to think what Valentine's Day has become. And it's become incredibly lucrative. Now, if you sort of look at recent uh, statistics, here is sort of an infographic detailing the amount of money that individual Americans plan to spend on Valentine's Day. And you can see the red bar graphs moving to the right, the numbers increasing, obviously. And even with COVID, in 2020, uh, the average American uh, planned to spend almost $200 when Valentine's Day uh, rolled around, 21% spike uh, from the previous year. So it's incredibly lucrative. This Valentine's Day. Now, when we sort of add up all the numbers, it's quite staggering when you actually think about the amount of money that is spent. It's into the billions on uh, yearly Valentine's Day spending. And you can sort of see the numbers moving from left to right, 2007, all the way to uh, even this year, 2021. And what's uh, fascinating is that you take out the aberration of uh, (laughs) individuals in lockdown or in shelter-in-place in 2020, where I guess they had nothing else to spend on, so uh, it quite spiked $27.4 billion. Uh, just this past February 14th, uh, Valentine's Day netted $21.8 billion. It is quite remarkable when you think about where we've come from, from this uh, Roman pagan feast of Lupercalia, then blending it with this uh, Catholic priest, uh, Valentine, and now, oh boy, Valentine's Day is a money-making uh, machine. And I thought this was quite unique. Um, this is from uh, thespruce.com. And this is little tiny uh, factoid here at the bottom, which I highlighted. But it has to do with flowers. Well, uh, depending on which day of the week Valentine's Day falls, it can be quite lucrative. For example, Valentine's Day is bigger, a bigger payday for florists when it falls on a weekday. Now, why is that? Well, floral gift givers tend to send better flower arrangement to whoever's receiving it to their office where the flowers can fall under the gaze of more admiring eyes. So in other words, if it falls on sort of a a workday, an office workday, the florists see an uptick in purchases uh, because the purchasers are looking to sort of get Some notoriety in the uh, the co-workers eyes as they send it to their their loved one on valentine's day now this next slide i thought i would uh, sort of consolidate everything we've looked at in our valentine's day and this might be good to sort of put down a few answers in our sort of glossary there at the letter h and i've kind of broken them into just three headings so uh, when did valentine's day originate Well, we've seen approximately the 6th century B.C. Uh, Where did it originate? And that was in Rome, Italy. And uh, perhaps maybe the most important is why did it originate? And the answer is uh, it was to promote fertility. And secondly, it was to honour Rome's founders. And so if we were to sort of have a little summary of uh, where Valentine's Day came from, well, we would say approximately 6th century BC in Rome, Italy, the Feast of Lupercalia. Then it was promoting fertility and honoring Rome's founders until it was just blended with Valentine, the priest of the Catholic Church. And that's what we have today, Valentine's Day. Now, as you sort of finish up your answers, perhaps in your glossary of terms, I'd like if you could just come with me to the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians has this sort of uh, excellent uh, section on um, how uh, a man and a woman are to actually sort of treat one another, not just on Valentine's Day as the world would promote, you know, the one day of all of the year where you really should make amends and you should uh, sort of make up for lost ground throughout the year and really uh, spend to the backs. But uh, this is what Ephesians chapter 5 says about the love and not necessarily the romance uh, between uh, a man and his wife. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 5. And there's this little section uh, from verse 22 to 33. And the Apostle Paul, he's going to speak first in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. wives. Here's what he says, verse 22 of Ephesians 5. He says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the ecclesia, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the ecclesia is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, The Apostle Paul here in verse 22, 23, and 24, he's going to spend uh, what we would call three verses uh, speaking to the wives. And then that's it. And from verses 25 to 33, nine verses, the Apostle Paul is going to speak to husbands. And so a threefold exponential counsel is what the Apostle Paul is going to say to the husbands. So we would Uh, from that, believe that there would be a a greater burden of responsibility on the husband's shoulders. And uh, whereas the wives, in verse 22, 23, and 24, their prime objective in their relationship is to submit. With the husbands, their prime objective is to sacrifice. And here's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the Ecclesia and gave himself for it. And you see, the simple takeaway from verse 25 is that how did Christ give himself for the Ecclesia? Well, he sacrificed, and he sacrificed everything. And when you consider the rest of this passage, of which the man in this relationship is to sacrifice, oh, it's very tough. In fact, it's so tough that you have to give up everything. Look at verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. In other words, you have to sacrifice all the comforts of which his father and mother might provide for him and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. And so when we sort of look at what the Bible has to say as it relates to the holiday of Valentine's Day, it has nothing to do with sacrificing a goat in a cave, nothing to do with breaking a, an edict that's gone throughout all the land and marry a man and a woman. It has everything to do with taking on a responsibility, firstly for the wives to be in submission and secondly for the husband to center on sacrifice and so here now we've looked at valentine's day we've looked at when where and why it is what it is today but also from ephesians 5 verse 22 to 33 uh, we have perhaps what the bible might have to say to give some guidance at least on um, whether or not we should be actually partaking in this holiday now, we're going to move forward uh, from Valentine's Day into Halloween. And uh, Halloween is an especial one because um, it seems to be one which sort of covers uh, far and wide, different lands, different countries, and it sort of has this uh, uniting uh, component to it. But it didn't uh, begin in uh, North America, certainly not in Canada. It sort of had its origins uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. Now this is from history.com and this is uh, where it's believed that Halloween sort of had its origins. Now Halloween's a holiday celebrated each year as we know on October 31st. And Halloween this this year was celebrated on Sunday, October 31st. Now the tradition originated with the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, when people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off ghosts. In the 8th century, Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as a time to honor all saints. So soon, All Saints Day incorporated some of the traditions of Samhain. The evening before was known as All Hallows' Eve, and later, Halloween. Over time, Halloween evolved into a day of activities like trick-or-treating, carving jack-o'-lanterns, festive gatherings and donning costumes, and eating treats. Now, further to this, um, why was it that the Celts were celebrating this festival of Samhain? And it kind of helps us to appreciate uh, what's all behind this uh, Halloween today. Well, here again from uh, History.com, it says, Halloween's origins date back to the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, pronounced Samhain. The Celts, who lived 2,000 years ago, mostly in the area that is now Ireland, United Kingdom, and northern France celebrated their new year on November 1st. And so when you sort of look into the origins of Halloween, it actually sort of dates back to its earliest genesis to the country of Ireland. And boy, when you uh, sort of look up this festival of Samhain, which is uh, well alive today, they don't call it Halloween like we do in North America, they call it Samhain, um, they celebrate it is really one of the high points of their year, if not the highest. Now, this day marked the end of summer, and so the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, or a time of year that was often associated with human death. So the Celts believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. And so on the night of October 31st, they celebrated And when it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to earth. So right away, um, we sort of have this uh, sort of a pause to think, well, now we've got ghosts. We've got the spirits of the dead now crossing over as it were. And so they take an agricultural time of year, the end of the summer. They take their new year, now November 1st, and they blend all these things uh, together. And just to sort of give you a visual representation, this is a a photo of the celebratory uh, evening of Samhain there in Ireland. And so they dress up this uh, magnificently tall uh, individual who is bringing good tidings Um, that the harvest has been bountiful, uh, that the ghosts or the spirits of the dead might pass to their final resting places. And as you can see, uh, littered around in uh, various costume form, um, the individuals there in Ireland will uh, dress up. And here is sort of the uh, the genesis or where Halloween has come from. It's quite fascinating to think that uh, others might call Halloween something else, but still the same. It's one and the same. And uh, just like Valentine's, Halloween is incredibly lucrative. Incredibly. You see, even with uh, the pandemic that was going on around the world, especially in the United States in particular, Halloween was still expected to be lucrative despite it. And so what this infographic is illustrating in bar graph form, uh, moving from 2009 to last year, 2020 is how much money was spent uh, just uh, from Halloween activities and that number there in the right of the screen is $8 billion. And so it's quite remarkable to think that uh, where things have originated um, really sort of lose their thrust in today's day and age, they predominantly been um, replaced by the dollar or by money making activities and also uh, came across uh, some statistics that would be more closer to home. And this is uh, from Statistics Canada. So sort of moving away from the United States and seeing uh, how it affects us here in Canada by the numbers Halloween. So three things to point out here on this infographic. Well, trick or treating. There's over 4 million estimated number of children in Canada that will be of the, they call it the prime trick-or-treating age from 5 to 14 years of age. How about dress to thrill? Well, over 2,000 dressing up for a trick-or-treating costume parties in a big part of Halloween. And what that number is over 2,000 is the total number of businesses that will engage in some sort of formal wear or costume rental in Canada. That's quite a lot. And lastly, at the bottom of the screen, um, 613 million and above candy, the value of the sales of things like cookie, confectionery, snack foods from large retailers. So this is big business um, when it comes to Halloween, even in Canada. So we come to our second of sort of the answers slide and I brought them into the same format. um, So you can sort of put them under Valentine's Day if you're there taking notes in the glossary. So when, um, well, approximately the eighth century AD is when the Celts sort of had this festival that was sort of picked up and sort of disseminated around the world. And so the Celts or as we would maybe more closely call them today, uh, Ireland is where, And why? Well, they were welcoming the harvest, the job of the summer, having now been complete, and the new year now pressing upon them. And further, it was to appease the spirits of the dead. So when we consider Halloween, it has its many centuries-old genesis there in 8th century AD, um, stemming at least uh, from Ireland and beyond. And uh, we just don't call it Samhain; we just call it Halloween here. And why uh, was it the thing? Well, they were welcoming in the harvest, and they were appeasing the spirits of the dead. So we've looked at Valentine's Day, which predominantly focuses on the old, and we've looked at Halloween. Um, which predominantly focuses on the young. And um, when, where, and why Halloween has come from. Uh, the Bible actually does have something to say. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's this little passage in Deuteronomy 18, uh, which sort of gives us an idea of uh, if we should be really involved in well, really what Halloween stands for. Now here, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, um, there's these various uh, sections that deal with the law. There's sort of a condensed, uh, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is, the second law, sort of condensing it. But here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. And as we read of all these uh, entities or individuals that Israel was to do away with, um, just think of how they're still alive and well when it comes to the celebratory uh, features of halloween so verse 9 of deuteronomy 18 when thou art come into the land which the lord thy god giveth thee thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations verse 10 of deuteronomy 18 there shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire or that useth divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. And you see here in Deuteronomy 18, um, all these types of individuals who during Halloween, people mimic and they dress up as, well, they were alive and well, um, but probably more in their fullest sense, practicing their arts and their enchantments in the day of Israel. And uh, here in Deuteronomy 18, Israel was said, you don't have to have any part with them. And further to that, in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 18, it reads, For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, that thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. And in verse 14, Israel is given really an ultimatum. It's a this or that, but not both. Verse 14 of Deuteronomy 18. For these nations which thou shalt possess hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners, but as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do so. And so as we add to our answers here that when Halloween um, came about approximately 8th century AD, where in Ireland why to welcome the harvest and to appease the spirits of the dead we might attach to it deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 9 to 14. that these alive and well today in the celebratory features of halloween we really ought not to be partaking of them because god has said to us through israel that it's this or that and it's not both and so we've considered valentine's day which i say Predominantly focuses on the old. And we're now leaving Halloween, which predominantly targets the young. And we're going to come to our third and final one, which is Christmas, which I suggest targets both. And Christmas, oh boy, does it ever have a backstory to it. Now, there is an excellent book of which I'll give a quote from right now. And it's called The Two Babylons. And it's a worthwhile book to have in a library. It's not Christadelphian, but it would certainly have Christadelphian approval in terms of its content. And it's actually by a reverend. His name is Alexander Hislop. And he has done extensive research into uh, where particular festivals have come from. And um, particularly as it pertains to Christmas, has its origins in early Babylonia. And here's what he says uh, in the two Babylons in terms of the origins of the culture as it pertains to this pagan festival. He says, The wassailing bowl of Christmas had its precise counterpart in the drunken festival of Babylon. Many of the other observances still kept up among ourselves at Christmas came from the very same quarters. The candles lighted on Christmas Eve. And you, so long as the festive season lasts, were equally lighted by the pagans on the eve of the festival of the Babylonian God to do honour to him. For it was one of the distinguishing peculiarities of his worship to have lighted wax candles on his altar. Christmas trees, now so common among us, was equally common in pagan Rome and pagan Egypt. In Egypt, that tree was the palm tree. In Rome... It was the fir, the palm tree denoting the pagan messiah as Baal-Tamor, the fir referring to him as Baal-Bareth. The mother of Adonis, the sun god and great meditorial divinity, was mystically said to have been changed into a tree and went in that state to have brought forth her divine son. If the mother was a tree, the son must have been recognized as the man, the branch. And that's from the book, uh, The Two Babylons by Reverend Alexander Hislop, um, page 97. Now he goes on in uh, this same book, The Two Babylons, um, page 93. And he has this interesting observation that um, as Christmas had a lot of its uh, customary practices, which are associated with Christmas in the origins of Babylonia, well, what do you do if you're the Roman Catholic Church? Well, he makes this comment that you assimilate the two. The quote-unquote birth of Christ, which the Roman Catholic Church puts forward, with the early uh, festivals and uh, drunken festivals of Babylonia. And here's what he says on page 93 of the two Babylons. He says, Christians meet paganism halfway. He says, in order to conciliate the heathen, and to swell the number of the nominal adherents of Christianity, two festivals into one was adopted by the Roman Church, giving it only the name of Christ. This tendency on the part of Christians to meet paganism halfway was very early developed. And the inconsistency of the disciples of Christ is contrasted in this respect with the strict fidelity of the pagans to their own superstition and that last little section in uh, his comment is quite fascinating because he is saying that the believers on one side were willing to be inconsistent and morph their christmas with the fidelity of the pagans on the other side who were not fidelity means to be faithful and the pagans felt That this was actually more akin, this new Christmas celebration, more akin to their own belief systems than it even was to the believers of Christ. I find that very fascinating when you consider that really, when you look at the origins of Christmas, it is an inconsistent meshing of um, the fidelity in the belief system of these pagans. Now, a few more comments here from two more books on the origins of christmas and this is from the encyclopedia americana and this was back well over um, half a century ago in the 1946 edition and it says christmas which if you're wondering what christmas even means it means the mass of christ um, it actually has to do with the uh, a sort of seasonal reminder of the returning of the sun now here's what it says um, in the encyclopedia americana In the 5th century, the Western Church ordered it to be celebrated forever on the day of the Roman feast of the birth of Sol or the sun. Among the German and Celtic tribes, the winter solstice was considered an important point of the year, and they held their chief festival of Yule to commemorate the return of the burning wheel, the sun. And so what this is saying is that in time, in the 5th century, the church said, well, we really need to overtake this pagan festival, which already exists. So what are we going to do? We're going to overtake it with our own and just overlay it. And we'll just call it Christmas or the Mass of Christ. And uh, I, uh, I was really taken aback at this quote, and it's, uh, it's quite startling. Um, and this is from the Customs of Mankind. It's a very fascinating uh, sort of collection of uh, opinions on the Customs of Mankind. This is by an individual named Lillian Ackler. And uh, here's what she has to say. It says, Christmas is a hateful relic of popery, And just look, uh, listen to the poignant comments made in the customs of mankind. It says, Christmas was originally a festival of the winter solstice, and it was customary to hold great feasts in honor of the heathen gods. The early teachers of Christianity prohibited these festivals as unsuited to the character of Christ. And yet the symbols and customs of the old festivals are adapted to the new. And so we find Christmas patterned with many customs of pagan origin. To the mind of the Puritans, Christmas smelled to heaven of idolatry. The Puritans abolished Christmas as a hateful relic of popery. Now, if you're sort of sitting back and you thinking, wow, these are quite poignant comments and where Christmas has come from. And if it's so pagan, why has it sort of been uh, so readily adopted, at least by uh, Christians everywhere? And I suggest to you, here's at least one of the reasons. Um, Because they created an individual who would give this sort of amiable feeling, and his name is Santa Claus. Now, uh, this is very fascinating. And this is believed to be the very first uh, number of illustrations of Santa Claus that have uh, ever existed, at least uh, in its still modern and present form. this is from 1863, and this is from a publication known as the Harper's Weekly. And you look there, um, you have a sleigh, uh, you have some helpers there, and you have uh, Santa Claus there passing out to uh, soldiers, so presumably around the Civil War in America. You're having this jolly, uh, amiable individual who's gift-giving and and happy and has uh, his sort of lovable personality about him. And not only is he amiable to the old, but uh, there also in Harper's Weekly, he's amiable to the young. You know, children uh, flock to him. and He's very jovial and uh, he gives out gifts and he deems individuals uh, to be nice. And so what sort of happened is the mask of paganism has been masked by really the the pinnacle uh, character of christmas today and that would be santa claus and i found this uh you know not surprising but this is an infographic and start at the top and it has the ages of uh young uh, girls and boys and it's when children american children stop believing in santa claus Um, So if you're four years or or younger, then five years or uh, old or six years old, seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old. And what they find is that children actually can go as high as on average at 10 years old still believing in Santa Claus. And it's quite remarkable because if you were to think about um, the story of Santa Claus, and you can think in your own mind. Wouldn't it be amazing if instead of teaching um, children about Santa Claus, they taught uh, their children about God. And instead of teaching children about helping elves, they would teach their children about angels. And instead of teaching their children about the North Pole, they would teach their children about heaven. And instead of teaching one who would like the way, they would teach their children about Christ. And instead of teaching about one who knows all their actions, good or bad, they would teach them about God's omnipotence and omnipresent. And it's just remarkable when you really think about how Santa has utterly disregarded any hope of young children coming to a knowledge of who God is in his plan of salvation for them. And it's really quite futile because eventually, as the infographic depicts, um, children stop believing in Santa. And uh, isn't it a shame because if the parents were to teach them about um, Almighty God, hopefully they would never stop believing. And this might be one of the reasons why um, the world is so fixated on uh, purporting this idea of Santa Claus. Because, um, make no mistake about it, but we are coming into the most lucrative time for all of retail. And that is this uh, fourth quarter or holiday season. Now, if you're in the hobby and toy and game industry, uh, 30, uh, 34.9% made in this quarter. Jewelry, 34.7% made in this quarter. Department stores, electronic stores, 31.3% and 31.1%. And you can just see that of the total retail sales that these entities are drawing in, they have. Heavily rely on the fixation that people will spend, that their children will receive the gifts from Santa Claus. But you know what's quite sad um, is there is, once the season has passed, Christmas burnout. And US holiday shoppers feel the burdensome pressure. And where do they feel the pressure? Well, they feel pressure to purchase holiday gifts. They feel worried about disappointing their kids on the holiday season. They lose sleep over holiday spending worries. They expect to go into debt in the holiday season. And for some people, they're still paying off the debt from last winter. And it's quite remarkable to think that with all the joyfulness and the cheer that is purported to come with Christmas, that when you sort of peek behind the curtain, once it's all over, it's not too uncommon to find that people sadly have Christmas burnout. And really it's because that they have created this individual who will drive the sensation to spend money. Now I found this from a book entitled Necessary Things by the Christadelphians on page eight. And it really just drives home the point of what Christmas has become. And it says, Christmas has become a colossal fraud. From the world of business, Christmas means money. It means do all you can to get all the money you can from all the places and all the people you can in as many ways as you can. The Christmas spirit today is the frenzied emotion that is generated by the rapid intake of dollars in stores. By means of tremendous pressures of advertising by press, radio, TV, and other means, the attractive, alluring window displays, extended credit, cut rate prices, experts in the commercial world stir up the people to exorbitant spending. In the Santa Claus hoax, the one that attracts the innocent children is probably the most lucrative one dollars have made santa claus the central figure of the christmas celebration a quote taken from the book christ the savior is born found in a in publication known as the necessary things and this is christmas and this is really the big regalia of all the world in terms of their big holiday and so we come to our slide again which has our answers and we have looked at with christmas That we can believe that it approximately began in the year 2250 BC, back in the land of Babylonia, which is in the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia. And why did it begin? Well, it was to honor Babylonian gods, and it was to praise a son and his mother, or in their vernacular, to praise Adonis and his mother. Now, as we did with Valentine's and we did with Halloween, I want you to turn with me to Zechariah in the very last chapter of Zechariah, which is Zechariah 14. Because what we find in Zechariah 14 is um, a little passage that will add to our answers to this uh, Christmas holiday that the world uh, celebrates and uh, which they believe gives them so much joy and gives them so much everlasting comfort, but far often leaves them feeling empty and searching for the next year's holiday season to come around again. And here's what it says in Zechariah chapter 14. And um, there is one festival which we are sure that when the kingdom comes on this earth, that everyone, no matter what race or ethnicity, what part of the world you hail from, you will be called to celebrate. And here's what it says in Zechariah chapter 14 in verse 16. It says in verse 16 of Zechariah 14, And it shall come to pass that everyone is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year. And so here in Zechariah 14 verse 16, that once the battle of Armageddon has come to its conclusion the nations have lost the battle and christ is established in jerusalem it says that year to year so this will be a holy day once a year that will be celebrated and what will they be celebrating well in verse 16 they shall come even go up from year to year to worship the king the lord of hosts and to keep the feast of tabernacles Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, if you just sort of recall from memory, it commemorated that the children of Israel came out of Egypt. So they were given their freedom. And if we sort of take the symbolic lesson of that, is whereas the children of Israel literally came out of the land of Egypt and given their freedom to come into the promised land, the symbolic element of that is that we are free from sin and death. And the Feast of Tabernacles in the kingdom will, in part, have this feature, that it's to commemorate, that those that are celebrating it have an opportunity to be free from sin and death, and they'll keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But there's a warning in verse 17 of Zechariah 14. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. And so in the kingdom, there will be a this or that. There will not be both. It will be a call to come up to Jerusalem to assent to the idea That there is one which will free from sin and death. But if you don't come up, then there will be no blessing. And if that individual in the kingdom, that family, is obstinate, then there will be no rain. And if there is no rain, there is no water. And the time will be short which they will be able to survive. And you see, in the kingdom, God will have... It's so that there will be no more pagan feasts. There will only be holy days kept, which will honor the true King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his true message that we have a chance to be free from sin and death. And you see, brothers and sisters and young people, as we commence our night together, we ask the question where do holidays come from? And you see, here I leave you with the final answer as to whether we should celebrate them. You see, when we think of holidays, we should think that we should honor Christ's sacrifice, no matter the time of year, but particularly this holiday season. And this is from Celebrating Christmas. Is it really scriptural? Again, a Christadelphian publication. And it says, as families gather around a nativity scene, they have little idea of the true purpose of the master they enjoy the christmas tree the gifts and feasting with little thought concerning what the bible really teaches the world celebrates christ's birth at christmas time but the bible is more concerned with his sacrifice and death it is in this great work that salvation is found for the scripture states Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. The likeness Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. It testifies that we should be honoring his sacrifice and demonstrating that principle in a true belief. Baptism. And a walking in a life of obedience. And so here we conclude our evening together having considered the question, where do holidays come from? And I leave it with you with Bible in hand to answer the next question, should we celebrate them.